Register, the podcast about architecture and landscape from the Kingston School of Art in London. My name is Andrew Clancy. In this episode, I'm joined by Eddie Heathcote. Eddie is the critic, the architectural critic for the Financial Times and has written a great number of books on architecture also. In this conversation, we discuss Eddie's education here in the Kingston School of Art and how he found his way through the discipline to becoming a writer about the subject. And we go on to talk about the value of writing and of critics more generally, both as a conduit between the architectural discipline and the public, but also to maintain a healthy, robust conversation within the discipline itself. I do hope you enjoyed the podcast. So, Eddie, well, welcome back to the Kingston School of Art. Obviously, you've studied here. I mean, I don't want you to tell us how long ago, if that doesn't <laughs> suit you. Thank you. Yeah, so it's nice to be back. It's always nice to be back. It feels kind of uh, like a home. Mm. We might just start right right in where you are now, which mm-hmm. is you're a writer. You're in many different forms, but primarily the Financial Times, um, um, but also in books and other forums. And you host a website that's about the value of reading and the value of writing. And I guess it would be an interesting point to start, which is that this UK context of architecturally trained critics writing in the mass media with one eye on the architecture and one eye on the public. And how are you navigating that at the moment? Where do you see the challenges in that and the values in that? We're, I think, at a pivotal moment. So I think the, the, the high point of architectural criticism in the mainstream media is on the wane. So I think there was a, probably a, a kind of uh, a zenith in the 70s and 80s when all the papers had full-time, uh, well-paid critics um, seriously engaging with the subject. I think now we're kind of on the on the tail of that. We're quite lucky that there still are a number of, I think, really very good critics. And as you say, they, they tend to have had architectural training. You mentioned Ellis Woodman uh, earlier, uh, Ollie Wainwright, similarly. What I do is kind of very particular, aimed at a very, it's aimed at a very particular audience. The FT has its audience, which is, you know, fairly affluent, fairly well-traveled, fairly educated. So I'm in a little bit of a, a privileged position that I can uh, assume some background knowledge about cities, about real estate, about some kind of basic elements of architecture. They're, they're probably uh, interested in art as well. Finance, in a way, is intimately linked to uh, building, to construction. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm relatively lucky. But at the same time, I'm not writing for architects. Mm. I'm writing for a much broader uh, audience. I'm hoping that architects are still able to read uh, what I write and glean something from it. But they're not my uh, fundamental uh, audience and architectural criticism in the architectural press I think is is a completely different discipline and I used to uh, think that I could straddle uh, those two words but I find that the more I write for the Financial Times and I've been doing that for 20 years the more I write for the paper the more I write like a, a newspaper critic or a journalist and the less I'm able to transcend that kind of the limitations of knowledge and uh, space and write a longer, uh, more involved and more engaged architectural critique, more specialist thing. But it's interesting because as an architect, I'm glad that people like you make that decision 
I suppose, because there are so few conduits between architectural discourse and public conversations about the built environment, which are commonplace. Yeah. I hate that building, etc. There's very few people speaking into both camps in a way. Yeah. It is, it is still a critical role that you take. It's not one of zero resistance because obviously in the Financial Times where they have that how to spend it section mm. or whatever, you, you one could imagine a critic in the Financial Times being celebra- celebratory of global capital forces and iconic architecture linked to that. Yeah. But you don't take that line and the paper obviously welcomes that you don't. And I'm just interested in that, is that you are seeking to show some... Yeah, well, there are... I mean, I have to, I have to make a disclaimer and say that I don't write for how to spend it. Just in no, case I know. Anyone, exactly, exactly. I know <laughs> Just in case anyone uh, yeah. you know, mistakes that magazine. That magazine, by the way, was uh, Colonel Gaddafi's favourite uh, magazine. He had a stack of them by his uh, uh, toilet when they invaded his uh, palace. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but but I guess we, know, we need to make the point that there is a place for lifestyle journalism, that there is design journalism, and there's, you know, this week's sofas are red or mauve or whatever it is. There, that, that has its place in the FT as well. And a lot of people engage with design at that level. So I don't want to be too condescending about that sure. kind of style journalism, let's call it. But as you say, I try, I, I, I you know, very much try and avoid that end of the um, design world and, and try and do something more provocative, asking the bigger questions about architecture and, and also design, because you know, my official position is the architecture and design critic. So I'm trying to look at the complex relationships between cities and politics and art and architecture and, uh, and audiences and changing you know, forms of engagement and media and so on. I'm not sure that's answered your question, actually. <laughs> well, it does, because I think where I'm sort of going is that, okay, so we can thread themes through the writing, which is sometimes about showing a light on mm. people that might not be well-known. It's, it's very rarely, actually, although you have to cover the big building projects, but it's very rarely that, actually. Yeah. It tends to be that you're hunting things out. And I'm yes. wondering, in the same way that an architect is trained that they're even if they're doing a house extension in Lewisham, that some aspect of that has a public facing role. Even yeah. though it's for a private client, it has a public facing role. And it just seems to me that the critics with an architectural background and architectural training seem to take the same tack, which mm-hmm. is that although there is the job and the wage, there seems to be a different agenda as well, which is to do with a public facing role, which is I mean, I don't want to push it, but you could say an ethical position that people seem to take. You have, uh, Rowan does, Ellis does, Ollie does. They all have clearly defined ethical takes on the world. They're open-minded about architecture, Mm -hmm. but they are critical where it needs to be. And I'm just wondering, and maybe it's slightly naive on my part, is that grounded in the architectural training or is that just a common critical position that all critics somehow adopt throughout their careers? I think it must be grounded in the architectural training. I haven't. It's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it before, but I suppose you inevitably come out of architecture training and early practice, early years of practice, with uh, an enhanced understanding of why the way the world works the way it does. So you, you have to understand a little about economics, a little about politics, about business, about investment, about construction. You have to understand people 
um, the people, your clients, your your uh, audience, your the contractors. So there's a kind of uh, empathy, even though architects are you know not famed for their empathy, but there is a, a degree of that which I think you have to engage with. In a way, you almost inevitably come out with what we might call a a liberal left sensibility, mm. and that then affects everything you do, and the media broadly or at least the media that's interested in architecture, has a probably sympathetic uh, viewpoint, um, even the FT. Mm. So, you know, the FT is, is surprisingly uh, liberal in its agenda. Um, and the right-wing media tends not tends to distrust architecture anyway. Mm. So the Times really doesn't engage with architecture, the Telegraph much less so now than it used to. Um, and obviously the, the tabloids are not interested in it at all. Architects are very good at talking, and they're very good at talking to each other. Hmm. Um, you know, it's a, it's a specialism. Yeah. And I think they're much worse at explaining what they do to a broader audience. So hmm. I see, in a way, my uh, task partly as a conduit between the architectural profession to translate some of what they're saying to a broader public, partly to pick out what I think is interesting in what they're saying, a lot of which, of course, of what they're saying is not interesting. Hmm. But also to acknowledge that architecture uh, makes the world that we live in. So it defines that the architecture, uh, which is often marginalised in the media, creates the visual world that we walk around in and live in and dream in. Mm. Uh, you know, it couldn't meet, it couldn't be more important, far more important than opera or ballet, which are genuinely marginal concerns. But interestingly, those accepted. Uh, forms of culture, those uh, arts, uh, have a much more stable place in the media. So there are ballet reviews, there are uh, modern dance reviews, uh, art reviews, and of course they, they affect actually a very small amount of people, mm. um, whereas architecture affects everyone. So I always feel that my job is to justify architecture's place in the arts pages. There's the job, but there's also the preservation of the job for those who might come after you. Is part yeah. of that duty of care. I think that's that's right, and also for architects themselves. So to try to get what are, to try and get the good things that architects do valued. And this is an interesting point because it is true. I mean, I was remarking to. I mean, probably shouldn't have sent it. I sent an email to a cultural journalist in Ireland, and she's somebody I'd admire. But I was pointing out that say in any of the papers in Ireland, including her own, there's no architecture critic yeah. at all. And that Irish architecture is actually relatively strong for a mm. country of our size, and it seems very strange, when at the same time there are four or five writing reviewers in her own paper, two drama critics, mm -hmm. two cinema critics, three music critics. <laughs> and it is interesting that because it's also true of all of those disciplines that they have remarkably rich internal languages and discourses yep. anyone who's heard two jazz musicians talk about jazz knows yeah. that that's a pretty alienating conversation if you're not familiar <laughs> with jazz but those critics are much more comfortable about that conduit between that and the public and there's a kind of a thing in architecture where architects constantly seem to get um, critiqued for that failure on their part yeah. you know that yeah. kind of that weakness in inverted commas and then architects say like Bjarke Ingels who talk the language of neoliberal economics. Yeah. They talk the language in their diagram of 
the jury and the committee-based decision process, they do remarkably well because they act as a kind of um, a shortcut or a short-circuiting of all of that, yeah. where, in fact, actually, it must be very difficult work to critique on one level because it's not really concerned with any critical position. Well, that sounds a bit harsh. Maybe it's meant to be. But they're not really concerned with that other than the connection with getting work seems to be the subtext. And as a critic, I mean, that's a bit of a long-winded conversation for myself, but uh, do you see those things as well where, um, like whatever it is, every novelist wants their novel to be critiqued? Yeah. But there are architects who simply don't want their buildings to be critiqued, or the whole style of architecture seems to be uncriticable, if you know what I mean, in a certain level, you know. Is that fair? I think it's an interesting uh, remark. The Bianca Ingalls is an interest is a is a fascinating uh, outlier because his work is quite easy to critique in a way. Yeah, because you can clearly say this is either superficial nonsense designed exactly as you say to appeal to juries and journalists and uh, uh, headline writers, or you could say it's extremely easy to write about. Mm. Precisely because it's aimed exactly at headline writers and journalists. and So he has very good stories. He develops very good stories around his buildings. He has an idea. He can talk very well about what he does. And that's easy to communicate. I could do that in 500, 600 words. And he knows that. The other side of the coin is that architects actually are very thin-skinned. Yeah, we are, aren't we? Yeah. Maybe because it's so difficult. So maybe because a, a building is is so hard that you know that it's five years of your life, uh, and that if it is critiqued in this very small world of ours, it hurts. Uh, and they do genuinely, genuinely want to do good, but they are surprisingly um, vulnerable individuals. So for, for for what really needs to be such a robust profession, it's surprising how touchy they are. They desperately want to be loved, don't we? They, yeah, we do. They do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm kind of, you know, I know I'm talking to you, but I'm an architect, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm kind of thinking that through, because it is true. I think that, um, but that must be true. I mean, I've got friends who are actors, who are very celebrated actors, but I know that they never read any reviews of their yeah. work. And, um, and so I guess the thin-skinnedness of various critical disciplines must be the same. I think the making of a movie is arguably yeah. as difficult as it's, architecture. It's a good parallel, yeah. Where there's huge complex teams of people, yeah. there are literally thousands of people yeah. involved in any production of any scale, vast amounts of money, the risk is quite big at the mm-hmm. end point, and yes, I'm sure directors and scriptwriters and producers are as thin-skinned as architects are, but they tend not to sue Mm. Um, and I just uh, this is not something that maybe happens here but it is interesting in Ireland where there are stories of uh, you know there are stories of critics who are sued for writing critical reviews and it's a kind of an interesting one where that thin skinness combined with a litigious attitude to do with commerce is a very tricky territory then to be a critical to be a critic in yeah and maybe that's part of why there are so few critics of architecture it, it could be. I, mean, I have to say that the, the legal cases are rare. So yeah. I, I, I know very few. Um, but if you're suggesting that someone is a bad architect... In terms of competency. Yeah. Yeah. Then that is 
That's a pretty uh, all-consuming critique. Yeah. Because, you know, if you were to say this guy is a bad plastic surgeon or this guy, and I'm a specialist and I'm saying this this guy is a bad plastic surgeon, don't go to him. You could, well, that would kill his career if I did that in the FT. Yeah. That's a career-killing move. Um, so in a way, we have this problem that we're engaged in a critical conversation amongst ourselves mm. uh, in a small world. And then we... Uh, translate those conversations to a broader audience without necessarily understanding the implications of the kind of bitching that we can do in a small circle uh, in the wider world. Yeah. Um, I, I often think that my uh, training as an architect here and my understanding of how difficult architecture is stops me from being too cynical mm. about architecture. So obviously I can have my conversations with my friends about what a terrible building this is. But interestingly, we tend to have conversations about um, buildings which are really not that bad yeah. by people actually we quite like. And it's about the, the, this, the tyranny of small differences. Yeah. Uh, we tend not to critique the really terrible things that are going on because they're almost off our radar. We feel that they're almost beyond our control. Yeah. And I think that's one of the points where we can get stuck a little, you know, in our own world. And I'm, I'm just as guilty of that, you know, because my friends inevitably, I suppose, have, you know, the background I have are architects. And, um, you know, we can get a little uh, stuck in our own world and maybe then forget the, the implications architecture has on the broader world, the broader culture. I don't know, but isn't it also true of, of architectural conversations in themselves? I mean, you know, people will talk at great detail about a work by yeah. an architect that might be universally admired. Yeah. But they'll break it down. And if you listen to that conversation, yeah. it sounds like they might hate the building. Yeah, that's right. When in fact, what they're trying to do is to work out as a practitioner their own positions vis-a-vis things, which means mm-hmm. that the artifact, the buildings that we place out there, necess- they sort of necessarily come with the desire that somebody intellectually needs to take a chisel to them to understand where they are and where yeah. you are. If yeah. they just go, I love that new building by, say, Cruiser St. John, yeah. and it's unmediated, they don't advance their own thinking. As soon as they put a butt in there, then they're thinking about issues. And I think that's a conversation where they might still love that building. Yeah. And it's a kind of, it's a difficult one because I do think it can hurt uh, it, it can hurt the conversation, but it's a necessary one. And then in the conversation with the public, it's a different thing because where do you sit on you know, negative reviews? I mean, I know one way to show a position is by just showing the things that one loves mm-hmm. and that becomes an explicit position to your readers. And another way is by taking the first thing mm-hmm. off the pile and you give your response. It's a one star or a five star. How do you fit? I think you raised a, a very interesting question there, which is... If you really enjoy a building and you really engage with it, you can be very critical of yeah. it. And it can sound like you don't like it. Yeah. And the the review comes out and the architect looks at it and said, God, he hated my building. But of course I'm I'm engaging with it. The 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 problem comes when there is a building uh, which really doesn't say anything. Yeah. And that becomes very difficult to critique. And you end up writing about that in a journalistic fashion, just you know, listing the size of it the amount of bricks in it, the whatever it is. Reportage. Like the, the, the Bloomberg building is a, is a good example of that by Foster. Yeah. It's a perfectly, you know, g- a good building, but I think, you know, I, I really struggle to say anything about it. It's funny, it's one of those buildings where I went to, and it, I mean, I went round it, 
Yeah. And I never was moved once. Not once, no. And he can move people, yeah. you know, Foster can. Uh, maybe it's its scale, I don't know, but it, maybe it's the brief. But I agree, it was one of those buildings. Well, I forget, I'd, I'd written, I'd just written 600 words on it. It wasn't a review, it was just a news piece, you know, listing all the kind of sustainability features. And someone, I think it may have been Tom Wilkinson, wrote a tweet saying, uh, you can spend too much on a building. And that was it. And I thought, actually, that is extraordinarily succinct. That's the best architectural critique of that building, you know? Yeah. There's nothing wrong with it. It's very good. It's very highly considered. All the detailing is impeccable. You know, sustainability is, is superb. But the, you clearly, someone has spent too much money on it. And it, it, it's strangled out all the struggle from the building. Well, architecture needs points of resistance. Yeah. To thrive. And, yeah. you know, I suppose when one reaches a certain level of celebrity, that's harder to find. Yeah. Either in budgetary or even in legislative constraints. You know, yeah. things are opened up for those architects in a way that they're not to yeah. the same architect when they were 30 years younger. And again, it's like that thing where, you know, having to resist something and fight with yeah. something actually is what produces the insights that might yeah. actually produce meaningful work. And then maybe to move to another way of looking at this is, so what buildings have delighted you recently? I mean, what things are you enjoying when you visit or surprised by or the difficulty in this question is that in a way to, to return to something I was talking about we were talking about earlier is that architecture slightly struggles to maintain itself on the arts pages as a as a, uh, a kind of self-sufficient and deserving mode of culture yeah which means that if architecture is connected with another art form it concretizes its place on the arts pages. So if it's an art gallery, mm. then you know the newspaper world, the editors will think, well, art people who are interested in art are also going to be reading this piece, not just people who are interested in architecture. The same if it's an opera house or if it's a, a theatre or you know whatever it may be. You struggle, I think, to smuggle in a town square or a, a housing project often, mm. you know, because they're 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 deemed as kind of well, you know, what is the what is this attached to? Is this just an autonomous architecture as an autonomous thing? I'm not sure about this. And what it means is that I actually spend a lot of my time going to you know, what we might call blockbuster uh, architecture events. So you, you go to a, a new museum in the Gulf or a new opera house in China or a you know, gallery in the States. Um, so I see a kind of particularly rarefied, globalized version of architecture, which I'm always trying to temper mm. with something that's more kind of gritty and local also to return to something again that you said earlier it can be very hard to critique those buildings because they have very little context mm. you know an opera house designed for a, a second tier Chinese city by a stark architect uh, for a place which has no culture of opera no genuine interest in it and no, there's no context around the site it's kind of semi tabula rasa it's an extraordinary thing to a hard thing to critique mm. And then occasionally you're thrilled by your own um, misjudgment. So I, I wasn't looking forward to going to see uh, the Louvre Abu Dhabi mm. film. Mm. And actually, you can't help but be thrilled by it. It's it's a terrific piece of work, and it it's completely alien to my taste in every way. You know, the, the place that it is, the way you get there, which is only by car. Uh, it's kind of anti-urbanism, it's self-containedness. It's like some kind of Bucky Fuller uh, uh, thing in a way. But it's also a completely filmic vision. Mm. And it, you know, it, people clearly love it. 
So occasionally you you go to something expecting not to like it, and you like it, and that's a, that's a bit of a thrill in a way. Otherwise, I'm I'm generally much more interested in the in the smaller scale stuff, the work of you know six A or um, some of the Swiss architects, some of the Portuguese architects, Latin American architecture. I always find completely enthralling mm. in a way that I just generally don't find uh, here. But I don't, I don't travel there enough, but I, I find the the level of uh, architecture there, or the kind of standard of architecture, much superior to what you know what we're doing in, in the Western world. Actually. This is Chile and Brazil, <laughs> yeah, and and Ch- particularly Brazil, yeah, yeah, but also Mexico and uh, yeah, yeah, of course, know, Peru and all these things are extraordinary. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said that um, architectural discourse needs some sort of um, not marginalized position but something slightly off the center stage mm-hmm. for it to thrive yeah because the conversations necessary to produce a decent architect capable of producing a decent building take place over many years um, lessons need to be learned through failure stuff needs to be observed and absorbed by osmosis mm-hmm. so in places where um, you know, there's a lot of money and where things are moving very fast, that's just simply not possible. So there's this kind of strange thing where, you know, the New Yorks and even to an extent now the Londons of this world, they're not really where uh, the most interesting currents of architecture are flowing. Yeah. Um, and I find that kind of, in- because say 20 years ago, it was exactly the opposite. You know, the centre was what was informing the periphery and the periphery felt even more peripheral it mm. felt even so out of step mm. with all of these people who knew what the latest movements were and it's interesting then that you have this comment about smaller practices and how that work is I suppose joyous or kind of interesting work and do, like do you get a chance then to because they don't have big pure representation you don't have any of the armatures that any of these say Louvre Abu Dhabi would mm. have mm. Um, I mean, how do you see that from your position where there seems to be... I mean, I'm just one of those things where I don't think the pure industry and architecture exists in in Ireland at all. Maybe it does, and I'm just ignorant of it. But it seems to exist here in a big way. The the industry of architecture. The industry of PR of architecture. Connecting architects to critics constantly. Yeah. And just as a... As a critic and as a journalist, how do you see that? Like, is it possible for you to get past the noise of people tugging your sleeve to tell you about things and you don't know whether they're being paid to tell you about that or whether they are genuinely interested in that? How is that like your side of the table? It's um, it's quite clear. So okay. that it, it, <laughs> um, you know, it's clear when you're being sold something. But we're in a position now where, in, in this country at least, where um, it's, it's quite an interesting position. So the, the, the generation that I grew up with, who at my age may be half a generation older, are now beginning to really take root and, and build you know, at a serious scale. Mm. Whether it's, uh, we mentioned 6A, but it might be Sergeant Bates, Caruso Sinjin, Simon Henley. Yeah, they're all um, doing great they're work. All, they're yeah. all doing you know, solid work. Um, and uh, uh, they've, I've kind of come up with them. Then there's a generation above them, the Fosters and the Rogers and the Grimshaws and the, and the you know, Chris Wilkinsons, who are still doing their thing. And then there's a younger generation who I am quite shocked to find out I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I've always thought of myself as a kind of you know, young architect. Architects always think of themselves as young architects. We do, don't we? Yeah, always. And yeah. of course, there's, you know, there's a whole generation of architects now below me 
who I don't know. And as a critic, that's, a, that's an interesting situation because you, you suddenly realise you don't know the kind of cool young kids anymore. Um, but it gives you something to discover. You know? So in a way, it's a, it's a rather lovely thing. You realise there's now a whole new bunch of people coming through with great ideas and, and you know, really now is a much more polyphonous uh, uh, era actually than weirdly than when I grew up when there basically was Pomo and the bits around it no, I tr- I agree. now there's everything from classicism to a kind of a primitivism and neo-brutalism and you know, I don't mean to split everything into little mini micro styles yeah. but I think it's actually a very tolerant era now uh, and when I was young that idea of anything goes was just emerging and it was very difficult to adjust if, if you can do anything what on earth do you do yeah, but now I think people are you know spending a long time establishing their positions and carefully thinking through what they're going to do, uh, and I find it very refreshing actually. You know, it's, if, if you, now it's the star architects who look kind of superficial and silly, you know, with the different different kind of blockbuster for every project, and you, you know, you hardly know whether it's an airport or a hotel. You know, I think it's. I know it's. I'm reminded of um, the chat that. Tony Fretton and I mm-hmm. had in the series earlier where he actually described that in a way that made total sense to me where mm-hmm. he said it's just an unfortunate collision of celebrity culture with architecture yeah. Yeah. at a particular time in both the formation of those industries and it's a once-off yeah. and it's sort of you could pity the architects who've got caught up in that I mean I know yeah. it comes with financial yeah. rewards but when you look at, say, Gary's yeah. work and those houses, you know, mm-hmm. not even the celebrated ones, mm-hmm. but that whole lineage stretching back yeah. of um, into the mid-20th century of him just asking questions and opening yeah. them up and not really caring whether anybody was noticing or not. Yeah. It must be a strange thing when Bilbao comes out of that conversation, mm-hmm. a general critical inquiry, and the gestation of that project coincides with his celebrity yeah. happening, and suddenly everybody wants Bilbao. Yeah, and and that isn't something that we can criticise Frank Gehry about, really. Yeah. We can, but I don't think that's where the criticism is best directed. Mm. There's a different force at work, and then, as you say, we have this pluralistic field of inquiry mm. now, um, which I think is true. What you say it is to do with the problem of language. And I think that that seems to have its grounding in the thermal break, in the mm. thermal separation of the facade from the structure, which comes out of the energy crisis of the 70s. And actually, the end of some imperial power structures, actually. Mm. And I find that very interesting that that has taken this long now to percolate to an architectural culture. Yeah. And I've been speaking now at length, so apologies about that. As a critic, then, when you see this kind of fecund blooming of highly heterogeneous approaches to the subject, how do you try and engage with that? I mean, how do you try and position these people, understand them, even find them? Um, Because generally they don't have a lot of money and generally they're not good at knocking on doors. They tend to be too busy working or getting work. Yeah. Well, it's still a small world, luckily. Yeah. You know, we we still live in a, 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 a fairly intimate Community, and I think you know, for all its faults, the 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 internet and the kind of uh, the ease of finding this stuff now has made our jobs a lot easier. So I can now 
uh, have a, a little glimpse into what's going on in Chile, uh, which was impossible actually when you know th- 30 years ago there was no way of knowing what was going on in Chile. Uh, you, the, the RIBA didn't have a Chilean architectural journal. Maybe every 10 years that something would appear in a Brazilian architectural journal. And, you know, so it, so I think that that has made everything more accessible. Um, you know, which is partly also why I think people are, are working to develop those positions. Uh, carefully because they realize that you know anyth- anything is possible and the whole world is accessible and um, I want to go back just for a moment before we start talking about thermal breaks and the cladding and, and <laughs> why things look the way that we do just for a moment to Geary um, I absolutely agree with you the Geary houses are are astonishing they're, they're, they're you know works of wonder and they're very close in the way to the art world what was going on in the art world at the time I think which is very interesting but Geary said, you know, when he was approached to do Bilbao, he told me that um, actually they said, we want a Sydney Opera House for Bilbao. Okay. So it's a mistake maybe to think that that was the moment at which the blockbuster came, you know, came about. In yeah. fact, there was an earlier generation, and I'm sure, I can't think what it was, but I'm sure before that, probably the Crystal Palace or something, there's always been a blockbuster. Yeah. People, I, always, I want one of these. I want a Crystal Palace for the modern age. I want a, you know... Uh, uh, a Salisbury Cathedral so I think the blockbuster has always um, been there it's just that somehow as you say there was a, co- a, a coalescing of a number of factors which led to the, the kind of phenomenon of star architecture and a few of those star architects like Geary, uh, Rem Nouvelle actually are kind of try- they're, they're trying to escape from the label without really doing much to escape from it so yeah. kind of, their, their rhetoric is about how do you escape from this and I think Rem, you know, who, who you can disagree with a lot, uh, is very interesting on how you escape. His last few strategies have all been how you escape from this uh, a cycle. Uh, you know, first he got into conservation. Yeah, it's actually the most interesting thing that the architect do is to do is conservation because that strips away the um, the requirement or the demand to create a blockbuster. Yeah. Because if you're working with an existing building, then the, the thing, the architecture, is already there and you're really just intervening. Now he's he's doing this project on the countryside, you know, which I think may may be a bit superficial, but it may also be very interesting. You know, what is the future of the countryside? Uh, it's going to be at the, the Guggenheim this year, but the, uh, it's almost a post-human architecture uh, in the countryside. You know, the, the, the architecture of data centres, of uh, mechanised cow sheds, um, a kind of huge kind of manufacturing plants when, and Amazon warehouses, which are in the middle of nowhere, but actually don't demand people. Yeah. What happens to architecture if you don't really need people in them? You don't need windows. You don't all the things that we're talking about, all the kind of subtleties and the complexities of architectural culture in the last three thousand years suddenly become unnecessary. Yeah, and I think you know I think Rem's brilliance is that he can always pick out a really fascinating subject. You know, I won't say he necessarily always gets his response to the subject right, but he always knows what the next interesting thing is. I think that's true, but maybe he's very good at explaining himself. Yeah. I don't know if it's as strategic as that. I think that there is... Whatever situation Rem finds himself in, he can make it seem like he's there by his desires <laughs> and I don't think that that's true at all he's like a cat landing on his feet yeah do you know like because the, the changes in his practice when you know when he isn't yeah. in control of it when yeah. the partners start to drive it and they're less talented than he is and yeah. you can see that in the work but he never talks about that yeah 
the work's different round because you're not designing all of it and they're not as good as you that's okay and uh, <laughs> you've become a successful brand leader to a corporate entity and you are still designing buildings but that's also interesting to talk about and I think that that explains one movement in their world and then yes I do think that others do also where say the Biennale might have been about trying to get past this architect tag where he famously said that it's not about architects but it was it was about one architect and you know this kind of question where he's constantly getting he's constantly saying that he's doing one thing but you're actually saying he's actually doing sometimes the opposite he's fascinating probably because he's just so talented actually Mm. Mm. Um, and we all admire so many aspects of him Mm. Uh, and so he's one of those people that we have to pick apart this way because they are thought leaders in our discipline yeah and and actually there aren't many of them no no very few at the moment and interestingly of the generation that we're talking about in their 30s and 40s this kind of European maybe Latin America etc they do not have or we do not have a Ram Kohlhaas we do not have some kind of polemicizing figure and maybe that's because the culture at the moment actually would reject such a figure yeah Uh, they could not be both a polemicist and an architect operating in the way that 6A do for instance Mm, or yeah yeah, it's not possible so 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 we're sort of ending up back there which is that in that kind of place then where there aren't people articulating the values really of what's happening this pluralistic and fractured field each practice is kind of forging their own course I kind of feel that there is uh, a need for more architectural critics talking to architects because right because not for not for not to deny the value of what you do actually but because architects now need more critical armatures than we did before we need to understand on a deeper level we need to reflect we need to be more nuanced in our responses to this and actually there's very few architecture critics writing to architects in that way actually which is quite i think that's absolutely right i think the downside of the you know i mentioned that the the um, the accessibility promoted by the by the made possible by the the internet uh, the fact that we can find anything from anywhere at any time has has obviously the upside of of the the, the, the being of that kind of expand expansion of your network um, you know to almost infinite proportions the downside is that everything has become superficial the downside is that really the the internet is now the place that people go to for uh, information on, on those architects, and there'll be a little product, a, a little, you know, I was going to say product uh, description, which is basically what it is, like an Amazon product description. Yeah. Um, and the broader critiques, which were paid for by uh, magazines with quite large circulations, and, you know, someone would spend a year writing a long essay on Corbusier or whatever it might mean, Breuer, that's gone. No one's really paying for that now. And that's migrated now into publishing, mm. uh, which is sponsored publishing. So it's kind of either self-published by architects yeah. or it's ac- or it's academia or academic publishing, which is sponsored by the institutions. Which are two very particular models, but they're not. Neither of them are aimed at architects. No. One is architects producing their own books for their clients. Yeah. Really, really, and maybe a few for their friends. One is academics producing books so that they can uh, sustain their tenures and uh, uh, you know continue their, their lives on the international academia circuit. And there's a big gap uh, where the magazines used to be. Mm. Um, and I, I agree. You know, I'm not 
the person I don't think to fill, you know, to be to be filling that gap. But I agree that there is a kind of serious critical discourse. I think that the disappearance of the AA files, temporary or not, is, has been you know very difficult. And that's a, that's a problem for architectural culture. I mean, the AR actually I think is getting better. Yeah. Uh, America doesn't really have an architecture magazine that's serious. Which is incredible. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, it's true. But then um, we could make comments about the whole architecture scene over there. We know? could yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. And I think you know, maybe that's part of the conversation later. But but um, uh, you're right. There is a gap. Um, maybe we, you know, maybe we always look back to a golden age. You know, I look back to a golden age of newspaper criticism when architecture was more central. Uh, we look back to a golden age of publishing when you know when when architecture books were serious and engaged and critical. Maybe actually it was never a golden age. Maybe we're just you know, romanticizing the past because it's easy. I, I and it's certainly the, you know certainly if you go into a bookshop now, the the spread is unbelievable. You know the spread of books and the, the you know the, the amount of things you can read about and the depth that you can read about them in is incredible. But the critical aspect, you're right, is a bit lacking. It is. And no, I don't think it ever existed before. But it, no. it, 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 it probably wasn't required in the same way. Like, what I'm saying is that in the same way we need people to communicate what architects are doing to the public and mm-hmm. put architects on the radar of the public, of course, which is very important, we also seem to need more of this kind of internal conversation to do with, actually, this is what they're actually doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of reminded in a way of the way that um, frequently the novel reviews are written by novelists and they're not really, in a way, for the public. They're sort of letters between novelists mm-hmm. about actually the novelists' own... Yeah. Their critics' own self... Of course. Yeah. And I think that's what's kind of interesting. That culture hasn't emerged in architecture. Maybe it will. I mean, there's people like Hugh Strange who are practicing architects who part of their practice is to write about the work of other Mm. practicing architects that he has an affinity with. And recently he was saying that, you know, Elizabeth Hatz had written a piece about the work that he had done in Shatwell, which he found very useful. And Mm -hmm. I've had similar experiences the few times that people have written about our work there's always something in it that you go, actually, I never realised that before. Yeah. That's really important that, to understand that. And maybe maybe there's maybe it's something more for architectural culture to develop for itself. I mean, there is a kind of programme in, in Ireland where the AI Awards publish the jury's deliberations, which seems to me a very good way to do it, is mm-hmm. that there are lots of award programmes, and if the jury's deliberations are robust and considered, well, then why not transcribe it and publish it? Yeah. At least it becomes another way of understanding the value of these things beyond it being razzmatazz or celebratory, right? Yeah, and I think there are other developments. Um, so, that, you know, we're here on this podcast. I think podcasts are a significant development in which people can um, enhance the conversations around architecture. It's another medium. It's something that you can do while you're while you are doing something else. So you don't necessarily have to be reading a book. You were saying that you know a lot of young students now who, who are pretty busy. You know they can listen to a podcast on a commute or something. I think that's another way of engaging with the culture. I think uh, lectures have have changed in status. The Architecture Foundation has done this series of lectures. You know where yeah. they've sold out the main theatre in the Barbican. I mean, I actually wrote a piece about it in the in FD because I was just so astonished. It's extraordinary. Neve yeah. Brown sells out the Hackney Empire. I mean, you know, it's a council house architect. Twenty years ago, it just it just no you know twenty people would have come. Yeah. So they've done you know wondrous things, and I think there are new 
I mean, obviously, the lecture's not a new format, but it's been somehow reinvigorated. Yeah. Um, and maybe people, you know, people are now interested in coming to hear architects speak. Um, you know, that's, a, that's an advance. <laughs> but also what's very interesting about those AF lectures is that they produce the... Because so many people go to them, yeah. that it, it reminds me of being a student where at that time, you know, it was the only way you got information, so everybody went to the lectures, and if they didn't, everybody talked about them the following yeah. week. And London feels that way where, you know, yeah. I think Nile McLaughlin's one was last night, and of course everybody who's there is talking about it, and everybody who wasn't yeah. there is asking about yeah. it. And I think it's interesting because what seems to work in those forums is that the old monograph style, where the architects stand up and sort of eulogise themselves and yeah. the perfected version of themselves, they tend, on the grapevine, not to do so well conversationally. The more ex- kind of excavatory conversations where people are unpacking doubts and uncertainties, but other things, that's what people seem to want. Yeah. I, I wrote a piece um, the other day in the paper which it came out just after Christmas there's a kind of bit of a blank period when they're, they're willing to publish anything there's not much <laughs> happening in the arts so I can kind of sneak weird stuff in and uh, I went to a book launch an Archigram book launch uh, they had this sort of 100 pound uh, book out and it was at the AA packed through after sweaty room you know and they were playing this kind of rock opera they called it of their work and um at the end, there was no conversation, nothing. It was just a, a, a bunch of pictures of stuff from the 60s. And I got really upset. You know, at yeah. the end of it, I thought that, you know, that actually um, Peter Cook at the beginning, he mentioned uh, kind of a, a certain vein of English anti-intellectualism, English empiricism, I think he called it. And uh, it really wound me up. And I went home and I wrote a kind of blast about you're not thinking that the past was better. That this, you know, actually the, the archigram images, which we're so familiar with, and are brilliant, you know, yeah. we, we can't get them out of our heads. They're fantastic, and we know what they've led to. And we know that you know, the Pompidou Centre wouldn't be there without archigram and so on. And they are still provocative and still fascinating. But at the same time, I'm, I, was, I just got sick of it. I thought this, you know, superficial uh, English anti-intellectual attitude where you just show pictures and they, you know, they even said actually all you were interested in is pictures we weren't interested ever in expounding any kind of ideas about what this was about I don't want to use the word theory but, yeah. but you know ideas and and I thought actually in a way it's time to get rid of this burden now it's time, it's time to kind of forget Archigram and, and think of something else think of the future you know, think of all the, all the, the richer uh, you know things and maybe some of the built works where the real you know, we can we can understand what the consequences are because we can see the building. So whether it's a a building in Brazil from the nineteen sixties in the same time, you know, Artigas or, or whoever it might be. Well, I mean, Lino Bobardi's for instance Bobardi, legacy yeah, exactly, yeah. is trumps everything spouted by anybody associated with Archigram. You know, mm. like by yeah. miles. And I think it's yeah. interesting, even though it's exploring a lot of the same ideas. Well, well, precisely because it's exploring yeah. all of the same ideas, but understands that that is in the building that architecture makes a difference. That's right. And that ultimately, because building has to deal with things like gravity, available technologies, contemporary building regulations, Mm -hmm. that means the radicality is subsumed into more, um, uh, less immediately arresting visual tropes. Yeah. Because... And that is also why architecture as a, as a discipline is so valuable. It means that a building can talk about 
utopian ideas about society and post-tensioned concrete and the energy availability at that time and, say, um, maybe even the toilet configuration about attitudes to gender at that time, mm. right? And so buildings are far more than what, what the theory is and that's why they're always more important than the theory. And I think that, you know, it's that thing where... God love them, you know, the Archigram people probably did want to build when they were making those images. Mm. It was maybe a clever way to get some work. And the work didn't come or came and didn't happen. And so they didn't have to compromise and they didn't have to get their feet dirty. And also they naturally became a little bit embittered about all of that. But one of the interesting things, you know, that that struck me as I was watching this lecture was, or or, or non-lecture, was that... Um, they were building, you know, they were building the South Bank at the time. Yeah. Um, you know, which has lasted and is brilliant. So it, it doesn't necessarily invalidate all of their ideas, but it, it's just a particular strain of British uh, architecture, which I think probably culminated in Foster and Rogers and Grimshaw, Chris Wilkinson and, and, and the others, um, which I find problematic. And uh, I think, in a way, it, it's led to a kind of Starkitect generation, but in a way, it's also held back uh, architecture. And, and, and Foster, who's brilliant, always comes out as the most admired architect, it is in a way a kind of dead end which leads only to Foster. Yeah, and like, again, Lino Bobardi's for that sort of work at that time, um, okay, it was acknowledged, but her significance has grown. You know, it's successively, as the years passed, our understanding of her value and of the value of those buildings on a global level has just increased. And it's the same with her contemporaries, Mendes de Roca, etc. And the same thing has happened with Caesar. Similar things happen with architects who build and who maintain uh, an open and kind of sincere engagement with the subject. And the image makers, if that's all they are about, and all they do is talk and make images and knock things which is what Archie Graham did as well they just knocked a lot of things yeah. quite cynical for a utopianist positive view <laughs> of the world they seem to spend more time telling everybody else what they were doing wrong that just slowly corrodes mm. and then eventually the discourse will disappear and nobody will remember the things that will say and the images will r- remain of value Yeah, in the way that um, say the Italian utopian movements of the mid 20th century you know, I don't think how many. I don't know how many people are sitting down with Natalini, although I know he's speaking yeah. in London. But what those images meant, but they still have value. They still have currency, even if it isn't the currency that was intended at the yeah. moment where it was made. They still mm-hmm. are valuable parts of our world. Sorry, I've kind of talked too much there. That's okay. But I think Burbadi is a very interesting example because certainly when I was studying, no one had ever heard of Burbadi. Yeah, and. Uh, I don't know exactly how she was rediscovered. I don't know whether that's a part of the phenomenon of the the internet that suddenly these works are accessible, or whether it was people were looking to resurrect women architects. You know, they were glad to find women architects in the canon, and then they realised how good it was. Or I don't know what the, what led to that. Maybe they were looking for new models. I don't know. The first time I heard about her work was when um, Yvonne Farrell. She ran second year. She's uh, when I was in college. And she was the per- first person who mentioned Lino right. Bobardi. And I think her and Shelley in Ireland were invested in Bobardi mm-hmm. from the start. And But I don't know if that's the door through which... I, d- I doubt it, actually, yeah. because Grafton's uh, 
uh, celebrity or sorry Grafton's um, kind of success on a global mm. level is quite recent and yeah. Bobardi's appreciation is longer than that yeah, yeah. Um, maybe it comes through some of the Portuguese architects who would have been aware of her also you know that's or would possible have been, yeah yeah that's yeah. possible we, we when I was involved in this ironmongery company we um, we resurrected a Bobardi door handle about, oh really about 12 years ago I suppose yeah which is a lovely thing it's a kind of horn it's a beautiful uh, and, and counterintuitive object. It's in her house, the, the Casa de Vidra, in, uh, in the jungle, you know, actually in the, in the rainforest there. It's an amazing thing. She's interesting as well, isn't she, Bobardi? Because I have an issue with uh, people, uh, say, being anti-intellectual or being against, say, some of the kind of more rigorous uh, conversations of the disciplines. Oh, you know, I just want to be disruptive and I want to mm-hmm. be playful. And you're kind of going, yeah, yeah. But... But, but but play is serious. Oh yeah. Um, I think that the English language suffers hugely because it has over I think about 150 words for intellectual activity. You know, if we, we only <laughs> think about remembering, planning, dreaming, scheming. Um, you know, we have so many words for describing purely cerebral mm-hmm. calculating, etc. Uh, thought processes. We only have one word for when there is a non-hierarchical relationship between the body and the brain which is play, which is what a child does, it's what a a virtuoso violinist does, it's what a Premier League footballer does, it's what an actor does. It's very strange, you know, I mean, mean, the the Irish language has many words for play, for instance, you know, Shenham is what a musician does, and Imrich is what a footballer does, and Sugar is what a child does. It's not to say that Irish has some kind of a greater insight but it is useful when you see languages pointing out that actually this field of endeavour mm-hmm. has also the same levels of complexity and I think that there are so it is it is playfulness is a serious business if you're a highly skilled and highly trained professional it's not whimsy and it's not reneging on your responsibilities and most of what architects contemporary architects describe as playfulness um I think is not playfulness on the level of a skilled intellectual. It's the play of a child, and yeah. that's fine. But what Bobardi did was the play of highly, highly skilled play. Because you're not mm. thinking of those door handles, but I'm also thinking of the the dressing on the columns, yeah. the woven dressing, this beautiful thing, or the theatre with the scaffolding, or the church. You know, these mm-hmm. things are playful structures, but they are playing with the real fundaments of our discipline. Yeah. I've been. I'm having to write something now about the Bauhaus for the paper because of the hundredth anniversary of the establishment of the Bauhaus, and I'm reading a lot about the, the the beginnings of the Bauhaus, and that those beginnings are all in play. So the 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 students, their minds had to be kind of cleared of everything that they knew. So the four course, the the, the foundation course, was really all about how do you get back to the to the, the most elemental uh, human state of playing with materials. Mm. And it's very interesting. It is, it, is a, it is a kind of purging of all the wrong things you've learned. Now, maybe, you know, they purged a little too far. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it is interesting that, the, you know, the, the, a lot of the things that came out of the Bauhaus were, were playful. And they were toys, actually. You know, they were chess sets or kids' toys or building blocks. They were obsessed with the frobel uh, building blocks and how you... Um, how you uh, manage to 
what's the word instigate a sense of playfulness from uh, from a young age from how do you how you don't stifle the creativity with overdetermined toys I mean I know the Steiner people are still uh, you know very um, uh, concerned with this that the toys you give have to be toys which you add your imaginative layer onto mm. uh, they can't be too determined it's not a, it's not an action figure with a gun or a, or a computer game where everything is represented for you it's a it's a stick you know and you, you the stick becomes a sword or a gun or a, the beginnings of a house or whatever it is and uh, you know I think that, that, that there's something in that yeah I think so it's interesting because you've mentioned briefly is a and you know, trying to get into a world where you both wrote about architecture and tried to make a space for, I suppose, care mm-hmm. in the making and commissioning of architecture. I mean, I don't think you're involved. Or are you, are you I'm, involved? I'm only very marginally involved, and in no, I'm not really involved. No, but the, but the yeah, the point of Izzy, which was a, a door handle and occasionally a lighting manufacturer, was I, I wanted to remain involved in the making of architecture and having been an architect and now having just written about it I felt a little disengaged and I like the process I like manufacturing I like the, the the making of prototypes the translation of the drawing into a, into a thing I find it absolutely invigorating and um, you know I was explaining earlier in the lecture that, uh, that I thought that the smallest scale I could still be involved in the smallest piece of architecture you know, you might say, is a door handle. Yeah, it's a significant thing. It's you know, uh, Johannes Palas Mark called it the the handshake of a building. You know, which is a very eloquent uh, thing. You, you grip a door handle, and you you almost know whether this is going to be a building you you're going to enjoy or not. Absolutely, from the, from, from the first you know physical contact with the building. And I, I mistakenly actually thought that you could you could just limit your involvement to this one piece, but actually it turns out that the door handle is connected to the lock spring, and the lock spring is connected to the lock mechanism, which is connected, you know, to the closer, and the emergency and the fire escape systems, and the joinery contractors and the subcontractors who are doing the such and such, and, the, and actually, you know, it's connected to everything. And like everything in architecture, every once you pull at it, all the other strings come out. So you're absolutely as immersed in the construction. Uh, Process and in fact, you know, we were talking about Geary earlier. The moment I had my uh, my revelation was I was doing an interview with Geary and I was using my phone to record it in uh, in Los Angeles and uh, my phone kept buzzing, you know, as we were doing the recording. And after about the fifteenth buzz, which I couldn't turn off because I was using it to record, I uh, um, I, I said to Frank, you know, I'm so sorry about this. <laughs> I was, yeah, yeah, I said, yeah. And the guy on the other end said, "Where are my fucking hinges?" <laughs> I, I just got you know hung up immediately. And, thought, oh. <laughs> and I, I got back to uh, I, got, I got back to Gary, but I was kind of I was put off. And actually, it was it wasn't a good interview because my you know I was thinking about this guy with his eight hinges back in Battersea or whatever it was. He was holding up the whole building process, and no one could do anything because the eight hinges went on site, which probably was my fault. And. Uh, you know that that was the problem is that it's quite difficult to uh, uh, to to live an intellectual life and, and disengage to some extent and and then also be involved in the you know the intricacies and the exigencies of the the, the contracting world. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. <clears throat> I think that's right. So I admire you know I admire architects who can do that, who, t- who teach and and uh, practice, or who write and practice and so on. I mean, the, the teaching and practicing, I think, are. They, they, they aren't really a division except in terms of time 
because the kind of conversations that are happening yeah. in the studio, you're just bringing them with you. Mm. And so they don't feel as divergent in my brain. But I do empathise with you because there was a time that during the recession where I made lamps and sold them. Right. You know, one, Is that one of yours? Yeah. It's very nice. Well, <laughs> apparently, but... It was just a total nightmare, manufacturing, yeah. oh, dealing with timelines, everybody letting you down. But of course, you're the person to blame because, you know, shopkeepers yeah. blame yeah. you. Well, they need someone to blame. They do. But what really killed it for me was that uh, nobody really cared at the end of the day. Like, a lad borrowed a chair and smashed yeah. it and really never really apologised. just was an insurance thing that needed to yeah. be sorted out or... Uh, you know, forgot to pay for huge amounts of stock and of course that was just, or whatever it might mm. be. And you just started to go, well, actually, there are things about architecture that still are pretty good. Mm. Clients do generally yeah. care and yeah. they do understand your human faults and you understand theirs. Yeah. And it's a pretty open conversation. And even in that context, the, the space for um, the guilt involved mm. It's all under your control. Mm. Whereas, you know, at those hinges presumably might have kept you up at night. They set a tension yeah. in your chest. Whereas I know that if there's any issue with the building or a problem with anything, most times either we can solve it or the builder can or the client can. And it's mm. a conversation. So it's a much more yeah. navigable territory um, and therefore less stressful. There. There has been, one of the things that I noticed and that made the, that job very difficult, very stressful, was there has been a fundamental shift in the architecture and construction industry with the design and build, the, the advent of design, well, not the advent of design and build, but the kind of coming to complete supremacy of design and build. That contractors now, if an architect specifies a particular thing, you know, let's say it was a door handle by Mark Pimlock, um, the contractor will do almost anything to make sure that that door handle isn't on the final building, that something cheaper is on there, because yeah. he can save 20 quid on each handle yeah. by getting someone else to do it. And they will spend years, I mean, so much effort, it's almost unbelievable to try and despecify the thing that the architect wants on the building, that you wonder what the rationale behind that is, but it's a power play, you know? We, we are now in control of this, it's not your thing. We will, we will copy the handle, we will get it made in China, you know, bizarre lengths they'll go to just to make sure that it's not you that are on, that's on that building. And uh, that's made the industry quite difficult, I think. But I think that's quite simple, which is that on the design build side, there is a novated architect who's mm. probably not the design architect. And they've been given a brief by their client, who is the contractor, to identify areas where they can yeah. save money or whatever. And look, architects are trained to to try and please people. We mm. talked about it earlier on. Yeah. It's one of both the strengths and the weaknesses of the discipline. And so somebody says, you know, yeah, can we do this for cheaper? You know, it's pro that architect might have a resentful attitude mm. to the original design architect, or maybe not, but they need to justify their existence. Yeah. And they go, oh yeah, listen, there's stuff in here that's mm. over-specified and I can find like for like yeah. cheaper. And then they've made a promise and architects tend to try and deliver on their promise. Mm. It's one of the reasons that a lot of mistakes get made in cities, you know, where can you get me an extra 50 units on this site? Yes. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm going to fire my original architect and yeah. hire you. And then the city gets an unsustainable form of building visited upon it by an architect who probably should have said no. Yeah. And also, but, I think, you know, the, the architecture is a delicate thing. 
Um, it maybe it shouldn't be, but often it depends on the on the very very simplest things: the proportions of a room, the you know the, the, the a particular door handle, a type of window frame, you know, which is particularly thin or particularly thick or whatever it might be. And there's this famous story about Wittgenstein when he was designing his house that he spent a year designing the door handle and uh, two years designing the radiator and that he had the, the house kind of almost demolished because he thought that the, the ceiling was about an inch too high or yeah. too low rather. Yeah. so he had to demolish it you know, and, and start again to demolish the whole floor structure which obviously drove everyone bananas but that's the kind of thing that architecture can depend on well it, it, it arguably depends on those things to a greater extent than things like concept yeah so what's interesting about the Wittgenstein house itself is that the original plan type was by a different architect and mm. Wittgenstein didn't radically revisit that, mm-hmm. although he could have. Yeah. So the strategy wasn't where the magic was, the, the detail actually is where exactly. the mystery of architecture sort of is. And yeah. I think you're right, I think the human eye and the human body is incredibly acute at reading minor, tiny, subtle things. Mm. Well, we, we made a, just to illustrate that, we made a Wittgenstein um, handle. We copied the, the design from the, the house in Vienna where there are two uh, different types of handles. There's one which has a, one which is a more or less conventional 90-degree uh, uh, bend, like a bent bar, and the other side which has a little kink in it. And I'd always assumed that that was because the functions on either side of the door were different. One was subservient to the other, so you, you didn't have the same thing on either side yeah. because you know, one's addressing a circulation space, one's addressing a living space. Um, and that's how I'd always explained the handle. Uh, and then uh, I went to the house and realised that actually uh, it's, it's for a French window and there was a, there was a, a mullion in the way. So he had to kink one side to, to get around the mullion detail. Um, it was done on a double glazed window. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's really interesting how the, the, it, the, the, the beauty in the house is all responding to very pragmatic things. You know, the radiator, which is a, a, work, a work of wonder, is just a radiator actually in a way. But it's, it's responding to the problem of a radiator. What should a radiator look like? And I think the, that level of you know, insane detail is what makes it you know, so enduring. And, and like you say, he, he begins with a constraint. Yeah. Because yeah. M- maybe if you don't, you, you never get anywhere. No. You know, and that allows you then the space to look at the very small things and to really you know, make an intelligent um, you know, reinterpretation of all these kind of absolutely mundane items. No, I think you're right. And I think that's why I think... Um, that's why I'm less interested in people like Bjarke Ingels because they come at it from the opposite thing. They're always starting from scratch. Everything is starts. Everything starts from an idea, sketch, you know, bang, you know, this is the idea, here it is. Yeah, and also it's a very low-resolution architecture in mm-hmm. that um, once the diagram is in place, there is no extra gift in it. No. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, like, I'm thinking of actually a different architect now. I'm thinking of um, visiting Zalverein uh, and going around that amazing coking plant mm-hmm. and then you arrive at the Sana building there mm-hmm. which I would have admired actually I haven't been to that yeah and I still admire obviously mm. uh, Sejima and, uh, and Nishiwaza but you walk up to that building and it's beautifully composed and super thin concrete and all of that kind of stuff and you walk up to the door and the door has a D-line handle on it and you push it and the floor spring is slightly too resistant and it goes yeah and you open it and you've lost them Spoiled it. Yeah. at the, the very point where you try to enter the building yeah. it's just become another conventional building at that mm-hmm. point you know where, where and it's not a criticism of them I don't think but it's just to say that it is that level of precision that you're, yeah. we're kind of talking about I don't think that's something esoteric because uh, 
everybody sort of recognizes that in architecture. You know, you're having a conversation with somebody about something and they're very precise about how mm. something should feel yeah. and why they feel that something isn't working for them. And maybe that's why the, the languages in architecture become so slightly fetishized and because we're trying to find a way of explaining this level of care and precision mm-hmm. to one another in a way that people can value it. Yeah. Because most of the time it's sort of missed, I yeah. think, by the architectural culture. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you don't, you like, well, the door handle was wrong on the Zalvaran building is not yeah. a valid critique <laughs> of the building. <laughs> And yet, on some level, it kind of it's, is. It's fundamental. Yeah 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 yeah, 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 yeah. Because I mean, like this, this you know, rather cliche idea of the door, the, the hand, the handshake of a building is absolutely right. And I think actually, the the um, you know, you were talking earlier. I think I didn't answer your question properly about the um, the, the, the the fact that architecture now is a kind of rain screen rather than a you know a, 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 anything else. And I think that the um, the accessibility. Uh, regulations have uh, led to a problem where you, where you have automatic doors, sliding doors, automatic doors. There has been a kind of downgrading of the architectural importance of entrance. Yeah, and obviously, you know, they're, but they're all good things. So that you know, the the, the thermal. Uh, break is a, is an environmental concern. This is an accessibility concern. We all want people of whatever ability to be able to enter the building in the same way. But at the same time, we need to accept that there is a, a downside. That there is a, but there is a sort of a broadening of the detail, which which accompanies that. There is. I mean, I, I think the things which inform the language of architecture are, to the greatest extent possible, shaped by the company's manufacturing materials and the committees that write the regulations that pertain to buildings. And mm-hmm. I don't resist any of those things because no. the job of the architect is to make 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 their world out of the stuff that's available to them mm. because that is what allows, as we talked about earlier, architecture to speak on all these different levels. But you're right, things do change. One of the things, but architects can intervene in that process, I do think, if they become aware of it. I mean, the classic one is that, um, say you live in a house in an apartment building in Paris, mm-hmm. which I did for a while, uh, there generally isn't a lift, or if there is, it's kind of crap. Mm. And so they also have this kind of strange property valuation, which is that the most expensive apartments are at the first floor, yeah. and then they get progressively cheaper until you get to the top, I think which is only reversed in the 16th, where the really posh, okay. posh people are. Right. And so what that means is that the elderly people, or the people who are unemployed, or the people who are maybe struggling in some way, as I was at the time, you tend to live at the tops of yeah. buildings up in the garrets, where yeah. things are quite pokey. Which used to be the servants' accommodation. Yeah. yeah. Which means you have to walk all the way up the stairs. Yeah. Which means you get to know everybody on your staircase. Mm-hmm. Which means that when things come to any kind of social encounter on the street, there's at least 20 people that you recognise in your neighbourhood mm-hmm. and you kind of have to say hello to them. Which I found really interesting in Paris, which is that for all its metropolitan elan, I knew more of my neighbours than I know on my tiny little street of cottages in Dublin mm-hmm. to <laughs> talk to. And it seems that the staircase was the fundamental way to make a low-rise, dense city. And it was funny, I was talking to, uh, when I was living in Denmark, I was speaking to uh, somebody who ran a housing association maintaining blocks. And in the housing association, they want people to live there for a long time because if people keep turning over, then you have a lag of several months when you don't have the apartment filled. And actually, you need that low level of income to maintain the building. And he was talking about a scheme that had finger blocks, a kind of mid-20th century scheme, finger blocks. Mm. And there was two buildings identically, side by side. One had an average tenancy duration of in excess of 10 years, and the one beside it had a tenancy duration of about three years. 
And this is obviously a big thing. So they were trying to figure out what was happening with those two buildings. And he didn't really answer it, but he had one conjecture, which is that they were identical in plan in orientation, but you walked into one building from its eastern flank and you walked into the other building from its western flank. In the eastern flank building, you met the staircase first. In the western flank building, you came to the lift first. <laughs> in the one where you came to the lift first was where the tenancies were turning over very rapidly. Right. And in the other building where the staircase was is where they were turning over comparatively slowly. Now, I don't know that the staircase yeah. is responsible. It's an interesting conjecture. But it is a conjecture because mm. fire regulations mean that in most conventional apartment buildings now, you come to the lift before you come to the stairs because mm. the stairs is back of house and behind several doors. And I do wonder that maybe... That that, that that level of regulation can be intervened in. You can make a decision that you come to the staircase first. It has consequences. Mm. But but they are architectural consequences, and they tend not to get noticed by people buying apartments, but they do get noticed by people renting. Mm. Mm-hmm. And I kind of wonder, maybe in the reinvigoration of social housing or lifetime rental, we are going to have to re-equip ourselves with all of this information, this kind of knowledge, which has been kind of lost, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Well, I... I I, um, I, w- I was talking about in the talk I was given just earlier about this book I read, The Meaning of Home, where I, you know, I did try to explore the, the components of a home. I have to say, I got to this before uh, uh, Rem did, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just in case anyone thinks I'm ripping him off. It's the other way around. But the, the walls, the, um, the floors, the, the, the rooms, the individual rooms, the cornices, the, the, the doors, the windows. Why are they the shape they are? What does it mean? What are, how, what are filmmakers made of those shapes? How do we see those in our dreams, in psychoanalysis analysis and whatever? And, and you realise that the houses and, and, and architecture more broadly is such a frame for the way we live our lives that it, it almost defines everything we do. Uh, you know, from the social kind of structures to the, 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 you know, we can only dream generally in the structures that we are given in real life. Yeah. So, you know, we are completely limited uh, by what architecture provides us with. But at the same time, you know, can we, can the architecture provide us something with that is, that is less limiting? Yeah. That sounds like a good note to kind of wrap things up because we're running out of time. We always close these interviews with one question, which is that, if you had a piece of advice mm-hmm. to give a student of architecture about to study or studying, maybe we're all students, what would it be? I, th- I have two. One is read, and by reading I don't mean just reading about architecture, but I mean read everything, you know, read history, read novels, uh, at book length, yeah. not just in snippets. And the other is look. You know, just uh, just I, I, it sounds it sound like slightly ridiculous, uh, basic pieces of advice, but read and look. And if you're going to take photos, look before you snap with your phone. Don't snap with the phone as a replacement for looking, because you're not going to look at it later. Or if you do, you're going to look at it in a different way. No, that's a, they're good ones. I mean, both um, both require some effort. Yeah, they do. Or maybe they maybe they require people to become comfortable with. Um, in inverted commas, doing nothing, which, <laughs> I, which, 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 I, which I hate to use that phrase, but, but in today's society where the language of production has suffused everything, yes. if somebody asks you what you did at the weekend and you read a book, people tend to say, I didn't do anything. Yeah. And it's the same if you're sitting looking at a building, you might be just sitting on a bench, maybe you're bored, maybe your back is sore, yeah. maybe your feet are wet, I don't know, and you're wondering where the bus is. Actually that duration you're still looking you're not doing nothing 
Yeah. You're, you're still looking and still absorbing. And it does feel necessary to spend time to doing nothing in buildings to really see them. Absolutely. And I have to say, my, you know, one of my favourite uh, uh, artists, the one, one I come back to all the time, is Richard Wentworth. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Whose series of Making, Doing, Getting By, there's, well, there's a subset of his uh, series, which is, I, I don't know what to call it, creative littering. So he takes pictures of uh, uh, railings in London where people have, have wanted to, obviously they've wanted to throw away their styrofoam cup, but they don't want to throw it in the street. So they stick it on a, a railing spike. Yeah. So it's not going to blow away. But of course, because it's not on the street, no one clears it away. So it stays there. And it becomes a kind of part of the streetscape. The same with a beer can. They'll wedge it into, into the, the space yeah. between, you know, between two buildings. And there's a kind of innate optimism in those things that people are not, you know, they're not, they don't want to necessarily pollute the world with their rubbish. They want to do something with it. And in a way, there's a kind of creative act in sticking your styrofoam cup on a railing. You're, you're commenting on the architecture in a way, in, in, a, in a way that, you know, you're generally not empowered to do. Mm. And I think there's a sort of a beauty in it. And I think it's, it's what Wentworth does is to encourage us to look at the way people are, are, are using the city, what they're doing in it. Even if it's as, as basic as, as a kind of coffee cup on a railing, I think you, you look and you, you take a little pleasure in those moments. Yeah, that's a nice note to end. Thanks very much, Eddie. Hi, Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Register and thanks again to Eddie for his time. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Um, again, the usual reminder that uh, if you like what we're doing, uh, do take the time just to subscribe or to leave a review. It all helps. And to thank the Register team, Christoph Luder, Matt Wells, Matt Phillips and Laura Evans, who co-produces this series of lectures and podcasts. I do hope you join us next time. Thank you. Thank you.